It is so good to see each of you this morning. We have some visitors with us, and and we are certainly glad that you're here today. Throughout Jesus' ministry, He demanded those around Him to hear. Now there is a difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? Hearing is being hit by the car that honked the horn, and listening is getting out of the way when you hear the horn sound, right? There's a little bit of a difference between the two. Now, when Christ demanded that one hear, He was actually demanding that they listen to what He was saying and react in accordance to what He said. And so when He said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear, well, that's what He intended for them to do, to listen to what He had to say and then to act accordingly upon what He said. After having eaten His uh, Passover feast with the disciples, the Lord did a few things. If you would, open your Bibles to John 18. We're going to notice, beginning with verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon Him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as they had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink of it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound Him. So we see after having eaten the Passover feast, the Lord and His disciples went out. They passed over the brook Kidron and He led them into the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane. As He entered that garden, He left most of the disciples back. But He took with Him Peter, James, and John, His we might say his inner circle of closest friends, a little further into the darkness. And then he even left them there, and he went a little further in himself and began to pray, Luke 22, 44. Luke recorded more earnestly, he began to pray. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And I believe it was at that very point in the history of mankind that the man Jesus was coming to terms with the notion and the idea of what was about to happen to him physically. He knew all things. He knew what the plan was when he came to earth. He knew what he was going to endure. He knew all of those things. But now, as a man, he had to come to terms with that and understand that it was right on the doorstep. He was going to become a sinless sacrifice for an uncaring world. Isaiah wrote, Surely 
He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid down on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 4-6. Just think of the magnitude of that statement. He laid down on our Lord the iniquity of all of us. And who does that include? Everyone that who has ever lived or ever will live in this world. That's a lot of iniquity. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of sacrifice to have to make on the part of someone who was sinlessly perfect. But he began to come to terms with that. He was well aware of his mission. He knew what he needed to do. He knew what he was sent to do, but he was still a man and he had to understand that what was about to happen was not something he would enjoy. Not something that the act itself he looked forward to fulfilling. Now, did he love us and and want to give himself? Absolutely, it's a free gift from God. He willingly gave himself. But he didn't want to endure that pain and suffering. That shows his great strength. That shows his great love for us. And as the events that would affect all of us began to unfold, and we began to learn a little bit about the ear that would not hear, Jesus went into the garden a little bit further to pray. And it was there that He had our meeting that we're going to talk about today. The Savior of the world fortified Himself with prayer. Just as He always did. Just as was common for Him to go to the Father in prayer. Not only did He go to the Father in prayer Himself, He encouraged His disciples to do the same thing. He understood and He knew that the trials that were about to take place would involve His disciples. He knew it would involve them in such a way that they would be tempted. There would be things that would happen that they would try their best not to involve themselves with, but that they would anyway. He knew that some of them would be weak and they would not be able to withstand. So He advised them also that they should pray. He sought heavenly, or heavily, His heavenly Father in this hour of grief. He always relied upon the Father when He needed to make very important decisions, when He knew something was going to happen. Matthew records for us, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Now think of that coming from the words of our Savior. He goes a little further into that garden, and He tells His Disciples, tarry here with me while I pray. Watch with me. Then he goes a little further. He needed their support. He needed their encouragement. They should have been praying themselves. And as we read all the accounts of the, the gospel, and we read about how that unfolded, this, this phrase, unto death, was not rhetoric. That phrase, unto death, was not used as some kind of a literary device. It was... Exactly the presentation of the stress that was about to come about and that was on our Lord at that time. He was enduring it. 
And it was so stressful that it by itself endangered his very life. He not only needed their sympathy, he very well could have needed their physical help in case that his body collapsed. He prostrated himself before the Father and he pleaded. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Matthew 26, 39. He didn't want to physically endure what was coming. He didn't long for that. But let us never allow that statement to shake our faith in our Lord. Never let us feel like that He was in some way weakening under the pressures of this world. That's no mark on His godhood. In fact, that shows His divinity. He was able to withstand even when the physical body did not want to. And He was more than able, we learned in our passage, to stop the events from taking place. But He didn't do it. Luke recorded the bloody sweat. That's an actual phenomenon. Though rare, it does and has happened on occasion. Under times of heavy stress, the body's capillaries, those closest to the skin, can rupture. And when they rupture, blood can mix with the sweat. And when one sweats, it appears as if it is great drops of blood because the sweat is colored now with the blood. Again, not a common occurrence, but one that has and does happen. And so we, we see now this, this great stress that was laid upon this young man as he laid before his father, prostrate upon the ground, begging for comfort. Now he approached the father on two occasions in our account. And on each of those occasions he went back to his friends and guess what he found? He found them asleep. Now we need to understand exactly what that term indicates. When we look at the original construction of the, of the sentence in the language, it intends that they had cried themselves to sleep. They were stressed also. They were, they, there was a great cloud that hung over them. They were worried for the man that they loved so dearly, the one that they had dedicated their lives to, and they had cried themselves to sleep. After the third time, or the, the, the third time that he returned, he said to them, having found them asleep, he said, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Now, that may seem contradictory to us, but in reality, I think we might be able to say it this way. So far as I am concerned, you may sleep on and take your rest. For the time to be of comfort or assistance to me has completely passed. But so far as you are concerned, you must arise and be going because Judas with his band of temple police is upon us. I believe that's the indication from the words of Jesus. The time for my comfort has passed. But you need to get ready because your temptation is coming. Now the Savior at that point came face to face with the seditionist, Judas. But he was prepared, wasn't he? Judas was prepared. Notice this. Judas then having received a band of men 
and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. John 18.3 He was well prepared. He was prepared, we might think, to go uh, defeat a great army somewhere. We see the, the utter perversity in his actions. In the fact that he conspired with Jewish officials. He did that to entrap the Savior during the feast. That was, that was against the law. He did it at night while he was in one of his favorite places to pray. Not only was it against the law to arrest a man at night, he invaded his personal privacy as he was communing with the Father of Heaven. And now it's not altogether unlikely that he first went to the upper room where he last saw the Savior and then went to the next place where he knew he would be. So he went to the garden. Luke tells us that it was a kiss that was the identifying mark when he led those people to Jesus. Matthew tells us that as he approached, the Lord saluted him with these words, Hail, Rabbi! And kissed him. Hail, teacher. And he kissed the Lord. By both word and action, he betrayed the Son of God. Jesus' reply must have been a chilling response to Judas. He said, Friend, do that for which thou art come. He knew what he was doing. And then he said, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas wasn't sneaking up on anybody. He wasn't coming there in the, under the cloak of darkness and, and catching the Lord unawares. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. And then, of course, we're introduced now to the servant. Malchus, the servant of the high priest, Luke 22, verse 50. He was the representative. He was the high priest's personal representative. We might say he was his hatchet man. He was there to make sure that Jesus was arrested, to make sure that he was brought back, and he was the beginning process of Christ's murder. The servant Malchus. That kind of explains to us why Peter struck him, right? He was standing just behind, or would have been standing just behind Judas, in front of and leading that group of men. If there was ever an enemy in that group that night, it was Malchus. And he had one thing on his mind. He held a very important position. No doubt he had a lot of authority, and he received a lot of luxuries and gifts because of his position. Those three men came together for the meeting that would culminate in the demise, the murder, the unrighteous killing of our Lord. But there was more than just three people there, right? Let's notice exactly what took place. There was a mob. There was a mob of people ready to take by force, if necessary, the Son of God. The events far from surprising the Lord... He knew what was going to happen. He had anticipated them. He knows the hearts of all men, right? So when the confrontation happened, he knew what Judas' plan was. We read that, John 18, verse 4. But he would still accommodate those people who would murder him. Why? Because some of the people would hear. Some would listen. They would digest what he had said and they would act upon what he said. 
as the evening unfolded, there's no question as to who was in charge. That group of men, those group, that group of soldiers didn't come there and just take over the situation. They didn't come there and bully our Lord around. He was in charge. Christ in full dignity was in control of the situation. Malchus had come to arrest the Lord by force and he came with a band of men. A band of men. Let's, let's think about that. This was a Roman cohort. This was the group of men who were stationed in Judea to help uh, beat down the trouble to help enforce the Roman law. And now the soldiers would have numbered anywhere from three to six hundred. Can you imagine that? Three to six hundred men? Now it's likely that it wasn't a full cohort. Perhaps a hundred? I don't know. But more than enough to arrest one innocent, unarmed man. See, we see that this... Malchus, he was also a coward, wasn't he? And they came up and they questioned the Lord and he confirmed to them who he, who he was. His submission was voluntary. He didn't have to be hunted up, right? I can remember one time years ago I hadn't been married very long and my rent was due and I'd been married for a little while and and I was going to get paid, I think, the next day. And, but I didn't want to be late on my rent, so I went over to my dad's and I said, Hey, can you borrow? Can I borrow? I think our rent may have been $250. I wish that we had a bill for that much now, right? He said, Yeah. I said, I'll bring it back to you tomorrow. And he said, Don't make me have to hunt you up. See, no one had to come and hunt up the Lord, right? He stepped forward. He confirmed who he was. I'm the man you're looking for. He said, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? He stepped right to the front, right? He wasn't hiding. They didn't have to hunt for him. He made that statement. He openly confirmed who he was. Why did he do that? He wanted those Jewish leaders. He wanted that Roman army to be in full consciousness that they were arresting him, an innocent man. Someone not guilty of any crime. And also, they would confine him and release the disciples. He was worried about their safety as well. They answered him by saying, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I'm he. I'm the one for who you look. I want us to notice, and it was interesting to me, that the word he in this statement is in italics. That means it was added for our better understanding. It doesn't harm the text, and it, it does help us to understand who he was talking about. But really, Jesus simply said, I am. That's the name of God, isn't it? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Exodus 3 verse 14. Jesus, even when we don't realize it, was confirming that He was God. But His boldness was a point of concern, wasn't it? They didn't really know how to react to that. It must have surprised the soldiers that, that He stepped forward. It's clear that they came prepared to arrest this man by force. It, it was likely 
the case that when they went to arrest someone, they had to run them down or they had to search them out or, and they had to use force and weapons. Not with Jesus. Not with His great love for mankind. Not with His ability to give us what we needed. And they were not prepared for the authority with which He spoke. Notice His simple majesty of bearing His his divine demeanor, His bold exhibition of innocence, it must have filled their hearts with terror and they instinctively shrank back away from Him. Says they fell to the ground, right? Many of the early church scholars attribute this to a miracle. I don't believe it's a miracle. I think it is completely normal to understand that when we stand in the very presence of God that we would want to bow down prostrate in front of Him that that would be a common reaction that ought to happen. I believe it was a result of fear and awe of this man standing before them. Perhaps they saw into him something that many people had not seen up to that point. But he was exactly who he said he was. And as we look at all of these events that are culminating, the meeting, the mob, we do see a miracle. A miracle does happen. The last miracle, in fact, that Jesus would perform prior to going to the cross. But before any soldier could lay their hands upon Jesus, Peter, in his rage, drew out his sword. He wanted to stop what was about to happen. He wanted to to make good on the promise that he had made, right? He drew out that sword and he cut off the right ear of that servant, Malchus. Fortunately for Malchus, he was able to dodge the blow, and that's all he got was an ear, right? I think he probably intended to cut off his head from his body in his rage. But see, Peter was a little confused, along with the other apostles. He was confused with the nature of the kingdom. He was still thinking that it was physical. Luke records for us, Luke 22, verse 49, he said, or the, uh, the disciples asked, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Shall we now go to battle? This is what we've been training for, right? Well, that's not at all what they'd been training for. Jesus told Pilate, or he would tell Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, I would have my disciples to fight. And he'd been training these men. We don't fight physical fights. We fight a spiritual warfare. But they wanted to know, shall we pull out the sword? Shall we go to war? It's very evident Peter didn't wait for the answer. He just went to war, didn't he? And that's when the Lord rebuked him. He said, suffer ye thus far? Luke 22:51. And he demanded Peter. He said, put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And then focusing his attention on Peter, he said, thinkest thou that I cannot pray now to my Father, and shall be presently given me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Matthew 26, 52-54. Put your sword up. Don't you understand? I don't need your help in this physical confrontation because there's not going to be one. I don't need you to come and save me What I need you to do is to listen, to hear, 
and act upon what I say. This isn't a physical kingdom. It's not about materialism, right? Can you imagine the damage that could have taken place and been wrought upon this world by that many angels? A Roman legion could, have, could be as many as 6,000 men times 12. 72,000 angels? One killed 185,000 Assyrians in the course of one night. Even until the end, Christ was trying to teach His disciples the nature of the kingdom. In the face of imminent death, He still thought of others and He tried to help others come to Him. What did He do? He reached forward, He touched the ear of Malchus, and it was restored. He not only had the power to heal the ear of Malchus, He had the power to not save Himself from the horrors of, about, of, of what was about to take place. You know, often we, we talk about what kept Christ on the cross, right? It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the creature. He created the wood from which they made that cross. He created the metal from which they made those nails. That's not what kept the Lord. He's Lord over creation of all things. It's His great love for us. He was brave enough in that time, not just, and good-hearted enough, not just to save Malchus here, but to save us all at the same time. Of course, we understand He never performed a miracle for self-gratification. He never performed a miracle to save Himself from some kind of physical discomfort. He never did that. He only performed miracles to help others. He simply gave Himself over to the mob. When we read John 10, 17-18, He says, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. They murdered the very Son of God, but He allowed it to happen. They didn't sneak in and get Him. You know, it's, that's one thing that really bothers me when I think about certain denominations in the world and, and they, they talk about and they claim that Christ is going to come back and, and He's going to set up an earthly kingdom because the first time it didn't work. That the church is not the kingdom that He came to set up. That it didn't work the first time. That's insulting and blasphemous, isn't it? A bunch of Jewish people, a bunch of Roman people, they're not going to stop the Lord. He did exactly what He came to do. But the good news is, right right before they dragged the Savior to the to the, uh, the trials, and right before they dragged him to his death, Malchus jumped up and he said, No, stop what you're doing. Didn't you not see what this man did for me? And he defended our Lord. That's not at all what happened, was it? See, he had an ear that would not hear, though it had been restored miraculously by the very man that they were arresting to take to trial to murder physically. That just doesn't make sense to me how that could happen. He was not like blind Bartimaeus, was he? He did not jump up and follow the Lord and, and praise Him and, and offer accolades to the crowd concerning Him. Malchus, as far as we know, just slunk back into history. We don't know anything else about him up to this point, right? We never read about Malchus obeying the gospel. 
All we read about is Jesus restoring His ear and Malchus, as far as we know, never saying a word to stop Jesus from being arrested. He could restore His ear, but He could not make Him hear. But that didn't surprise Jesus, did it? That didn't shock Him either. He knew there would be ears that would not hear, and then He knew there would be ears that would hear. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, He demanded, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? As long as time continues, we all have the opportunity to hear. And what we mean by that is to listen to the message and to react upon what Jesus says in accordance with what He said. Let us never waste our time. Let's never waste our opportunity to hear and believe and and be obedient to the plan of salvation that Jesus has given to us. See, those men standing there, they could have obeyed the, 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 the words of Jesus. They could have given themselves to Him. Those soldiers that fell back, they could have said, we're not going to do this. Malchus could have gotten up and defended Jesus and dedicated himself to Him at that time. That's not what happened. He went to the cross and He died, and now He set forth for us a way to gain salvation through hearing of the gospel, Romans ten seventeen, through belief that Jesus Christ is who He said He was, John eight twenty four, through repentance of all past sins and a turning to Christ away from the world, Acts seventeen verse thirty, through confessing that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, that He lived and that He died and that He rose on the third day, Romans ten ten. Walking down into the watery grave of baptism, being immersed, submitting to that. So our sins are washed away. Acts 2, 38. Acts 22, 16. That act puts us into contact with the blood of Jesus. Romans 6, 3 and 4. It adds us to the Lord's church. Acts 2, 47. It gives us a clear conscience and is the final saving act according to Peter. 1 Peter 3, 21. And then of course we live a faithful life always listening and hearing the words of Jesus and being obedient to those things. Perhaps you've done those things and, and maybe you have erred along the way and you've, you've, you've stepped out of the light, you've made a mistake. We can come back to Jesus and repent of those sins, confessing our faults one to another if done in a public manner and asking God to forgive us. And He said He'll do that and I believe Him. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation at this time, Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.